the Academic Podcast Agency. Welcome to the White House Stories podcast, episode nine. My name's Will Hood, story lover, podcast producer, documentary maker, and I am back here with Daniel Marcus Clark. Back in your ears. How you doing, Dan? I'm good, thanks, Will. Yeah, I'm. I'm in, intrigued uh, to embark on this journey today because today we're going to be listening to a piece um, that I created many years ago with a group of. of of collaborators called To Sleep To Dream, um, which was a piece that was created as a, um, a 3D movie um, just for audio. We created it for blind and blindfolded audiences and it was made for a 22-speaker domed setup that toured all over, um, sharing it with audiences. But now we're hearing to it. the first 20 minutes of it rendered into 3D for headphones. So I listened to it in preparation of recording this episode and it's gorgeous, man. It's really very, very lush. The way that the sound design works with the music in particular and also this sense of, of what you described, um, I think, in the previous episode, but certainly to me in conversation, this objective that you had of wanting to scale back on the explicit narrative and to see how much of the story could be expressed through sound design and through music and through the mood, right? The, the general um, atmosphere of the piece. And I think you've, you've nailed it. I mean, it's a, it's a very strong atmospheric audio experience. Thanks, man. It was created over a period of years with, with a lot of collaborators. We had lots of people come and get involved in this, including the composer was Buster Cotton, who I worked with a lot on the hat. Um, we had a great sound designer called Steve Fanagan, who worked on Game of Thrones. Um, 3D sound mix by a guy called Chris Timpson, who, who I worked with on Ear Films. And, and, you know, there were lots of actors, lots of collaborators, lots of people's minds and imaginations that fed into this to make it. So it was, it was definitely the most time-intensive and collaborative um, piece of audio storytelling I've ever been a part of. Yeah, I mean, I remember working on some very, very early drafts of this yes, with yes, you, yeah. which is um, which is going back many, many years now. So, I mean, and that was interesting for me because I I knew the story in its roughest sense. I knew what world I was about to enter into. But yeah. yeah, was delighted to uh, to find just how uh, how colourful it was, and and how much it invited me in to um, to experience and empathise, certainly with the main character. So just as a as a tiny bit of a setup, as a as an introduction or an invitation to you, listener, you are about to enter a post-apocalyptic world. Is that fair to say, Dan? would say so yeah I, it's it's a world where um the world is flooded um and there's only one kind of city left standing um and it's it's not a particularly nice one okay so it's called to sleep to dream it's about 20 minutes long let's have a listen In 2040, 
the great floods began to come, devastating the entire world and burying the earth beneath water. The few survived became hunters, searching on the seas for dry land. And high in the mountains of the east, some found it, a final bastion of grey in a spinning orb of blue. Later, a new city. And so people flocked there. But once inside these city walls, people began to realize that their salvation came at a price. The city denied people their basic rights. Communication with one another was banned. Breeding became an expensive lottery. And to stop people from questioning the system, the act of dreaming was outlawed. Two legs hang off the end of a bed with high black metal railings 
The man lay squeezed inside. Please return to sleep. Please return to sleep. Please return to sleep. Please return to sleep. It is 5.30 a.m. Please begin your morning preparatory routine. It is 5.30 a.m. Please begin your morning preparatory routine. Walk to the toilet. Stop. Well done. Please step into the shower. Well done. Shower activated. Powering up. End of designated shower. Powering down. You have been charged 20 credits for this shower. Step out of the shower. Dry yourself. Well done. Dress yourself. Good. On his lapel is a name badge. Worker 67378, Jack Richards. He looks at his reflection in the darkened apartment window. His eyes tired and heavy. In the reflection, Jack can see that the surveillance camera that normally watches him has just turned away. You have one minute to complete your morning preparatory routine. He pulls up a carpet tile, revealing a pencil and a collection of pieces of paper. Please prepare to vacate your apartment. You have five seconds to vacate your apartment. Step out of your apartment. Walk.
one way to find out now. Use your credits for the ultimate in upgrades. The family for you. Gold Industries offices. Sorry. Jack sits himself down at his desk and pulls a tiny grey fabric helmet onto his head. Jack stares at the screen, making a fat blue cat float skillfully and slowly across the display. His mind is controlling the movement. The cat lands in the basket. Excellent. You have 2,017 credits. Now try and get the pink flamingo into the basket. Well done. You have 2,018 credits. Now try and get the blue lizard into the basket. Worker 67378, please select lunch. Green. You selected orange. Is that correct? Preparing. Jack looks out of the window. Dirty grey clouds hang in the horizon. Inside the huge lunchroom, grey workers sit, silently eating, staring up at the giant television set, which hangs on the wall like a messiah. Each worker equally tired, 
equally alone. Knees crushed into the seat in front, Jack watches the night city as it passes the window. By the roadside, a long queue of workers trudge the city streets. Subsidiary floor, the lower classes. Jack watches them, remembering when he was like them, before his upgrade. Beyond them, the sea lashes against the tall concrete floodwalls, as if the water was angry at this lone island. And out at sea, clumps of rafts cover the waters, the outcasts and castaways living off the scraps of the city. And further out to sea, all on its own, is a solitary raft. You have enjoyed your journey. Well done. Going up, family floors. You have been productive today. Well done. Work hard and soon you will have enough credits for an even happier life. Welcome back to the family floors. Your life here is so wonderful. Enjoy all of your perks. Only available to you and none of the lesser Going up. Are you sick of waiting in line for the vending machines? Welcome back to the worker floor. Your life here is good. Enjoy all of your perks, only available to you and none of the other lesser workers. Going up, subsidiary floor. Welcome home, worker. You are happy to be here. Outside the window, in a storm-filled sky, a small golden moth flies, 
watching in at Jack as he sleeps. Do not be alarmed. We are currently undergoing some weather turbulence. You are happy and safe. is plunged into darkness. floating on the water. Far in the horizon, something begins to grow out from the ocean. Watch. Something else emerges. A giant moth. Its wings golden in the sunlight. You watch as it begins to fly across the seas towards you. see a room. You step towards it. You are in a laboratory. In front of you a child is asleep on a bed, surrounded by kind faces. They watch him with care as he sleeps. It seems familiar. A feeling of great warmth begins to fill you. Yeah, fantastic, man. It's um, it's lush, is what it is. I uh, I think there's there's so much going on there. I was busy scribbling down notes, during, uh, <laughs> listening to that, of thinking, oh, we must talk about this. We must talk about that. But why don't we start with you? Um, I mean, how does it feel listening back to that now as a piece of work? Are you 
happy with that? Because I know when you've created something, you spend so long just looking with the critical lens of what's wrong with it, right? It can often be difficult to, uh, to, to get a sense of the whole piece until there is some time away from it. So, I mean, it's been a few years. How do you feel about that now? It's a good question, but it's an interesting process because because we taught this piece for so long. Um, so after it was created, and it was created in you know over a course of years, like various iterations, we then toured it all over. Um, and so I narrated it live, and I sat in front of the sound system. So I've heard that piece, you know, hundreds and hundreds of times. Um, so in some ways, it's it's just very familiar. But what's interesting in hearing it is just what a wonderful job all, all of the collaborators did on it. You know, the sound designers, the Foley, the the mix, the composer, like I could hear their contribution so clearly and the contribution of people at, at every stage. Cause there's been, you know, I'm like, God, I can, I remember that in version two, someone did that mix of the lift and that's like, Oh, I'd forgotten that. You know? So I, I think that's what I'm hearing in it, but it's, it's lovely to hear. It's the complete opposite of Andrew Saxon that it was every single sound in there was constructed and placed, you know, every advert, every, everything was, um, was built from scratch. So it, it was, it was well, glorious. I mean, unless you were going to, uh, actually take your mic into the, uh, post-apocalypse exactly. uh, horror show. And, uh, and make make yourself a documentary. It would have to be that way, wouldn't it? Unfortunately so, yeah. Or fortunately <laughs> so. <laughs> I think fortunately so is probably. Okay, so you've got this central tenant that dreaming, the act of dreaming, which is something that, although not uh, exclusively human, there's something that is special about dreaming, right? In that... Mm. It speaks of um, of a human experience, which is the opposite of of the secular. I, I don't want to go mm. as far to say it's a religious experience, but there's a place of imagination, possibility of where things don't need to make sense, right, in dreams. So the idea that that is outlawed seems to me to be the central theme running through, you know, and that wonderful yeah. automated message of... Uh, after they've woken you up, asking you to go back to sleep. Tell me a little bit about that. Where was that coming from? It was it was definitely coming from a fascination with dreams per se. And I think that's like, if you listen back to the first three episodes, there's, there's those things come up in, in a lot of the early work, but it's really, it's about, it's about control and expansion and you know, that everything in, in later in this kind of premise is about control of freedom and then and and then allowance eventually you know it's like people pushing back and even like the you know the, the central character that we've got is physically too big for the world you know the bed's too small for him his clothes are too, the his clothes are too small for him um and and then you get this kind of every, everything's held in and then you get this breakout you know and it's so, so you start getting dreams and as the story progresses, you start getting this, um, this splinter group appears who are exploring the dream realm. Um, but it also came from, if I remember back, it came from a conversation I had. All of this idea started from one conversation, which was a guy that I met when I was um, many years ago who was dreaming. Um, he would go to sleep in the middle of the day and 
go into a dream state and he would try, he was on a mission to meet a friend of his who lived on the other side of the world in a dream. So he was convinced that there was a common space that existed in the dream realm that was accessible by everyone. So he had a, a, a dream um, environment he called his dream Paris. He'd never been to Paris. He lived in New York and his friend lived in Paris and had a dream space called that he called referred to as his dream New York and he'd never been to New York. So they became they came up with this premise that maybe it was the same place. So they would go to dream, go to sleep at the same point in time so at the same, uh, exactly the same time and try and meet one another. And this concept just fascinated me that there was, that, that there was an actual realm. And so that, that's a theme that comes up in the story later, that there is actually a physical space that these kind of controlled people, where there's, you know, there's no space on earth anymore, the only spaces that there are are controlled, that the characters start disappearing into this other kind of dreamland. So that comes up later, but it's, um, I think that was the thing that kicked it off for me, this kind of, this fascination with that concept. Okay. I mean, it's, it's endlessly fascinating, the subject of dreams really, isn't it? Yes, so um, much in there. We talked a little bit about it, I think, um, episode three or, or four with the, uh, the piece comedy. Um, yeah. I remember we went a little Jungian on the, um, on the subject with that. I mean, Again, the, this is just what jumps out at it for me. But the there's something about, despite the uh, the system, not wanting this man to dream, not wanting Jack yeah. uh, or six three six seven eight to dream. He, as an act of rebellion and as an act of humanity, almost is desperate to write these dreams down right to try and capture them and to me that is you know like a, a fascinating meta narrative because uh, and this is what i get from it again you know push back and let and let's get into your intention with it but it speaks to something of the man or the human being as essentially an artist in the sense that we we have this desperate need in however we do it to try and represent and make sense of the world in which we find ourselves right and there's an implicit promise in there somehow however misguided in some cases that that will offer some kind of salvation you know and and so there's something it makes me think of i don't know cave art you know 17,000 yeah. years ago our ancestors trying to make sense of the world that they find themselves in by representing their experiences on those cave walls in the sense that somehow this will lead to a progression, you know, towards mm. what is unknown, but somehow it will be better if we are able to make sense and organise the world. Mm. Does that does that resonate with with Jack? I would agree, like the big, the big theme. I mean, it was, the intention was that in those early scenes, Jack just draws, you know, he just, he, he, it's almost like however much you control someone, there's something that spills out. There's some yearning for freedom in humanity. Um, and, and so, you know, in, in, within this character that he, he shows his rebellion by drawing. And it's kind so of he's drawing thing. then, because I, what I got from it, and maybe I missed some vital, um, 
dialogue was that he was scribbling down the dreams that he had, like grabbing hold of the fragments of the dream. So I, in, so my, in my mind's eye, he was writing down, you know, the moth and, and what had happened. So, so it, as you might do if you woke up and thought, I really want to remember yeah. that dream. So that is that is what happens in that second just after the dream. He draws yes. it down. But in the, right in the opening, I don't know if you remember, there's a scene, there's a point in when he's in the apartment where the camera looks away and he runs over and starts drawing. Yeah, so he okay. kind of, there's this kind of setup that he is, he's someone who just, who just wants to draw. It and that, needs that, to be expressed it, somehow. Exactly. It needs to yeah. come out. There's, so yeah, I mean, it is this thing of like, what happens if you put someone in an ultimate space of control? There are points that they want, there are, we, we need freedoms, we need expression. And I mean, you know, part of the thing of, of having that dreaming is outlawed because it's the, it's it's the subconscious expression. You know, it's like even if even if you're uh, in this kind of space of ultimate control, these things start showing themselves. And so, if you even control that aspect, what happens? Even in a place of control and oppression, you begin to kind of process them through your dreams. So, if you control the dreams, it sure. stops that processing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I suppose the the spirit of hope in this story is that however hard you try, you'll never control people's dreams, you know, all that process from happening. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, what's fascinating having this conversation to me is that I suppose for the purposes of, as we're describing it, the difference between drawing a picture or writing a story, you know, and we're back to our central theme of why tell stories. There's not really a difference, right. In the sense that you're trying to, express the something you don't understand you're trying to give Mm. form and structure to it this is making me think of this thing that's been in the news super recently i'm sure you heard about this but the um the girl in russia drawing a ukrainian flag or something that was pro-ukraine and the father has been arrested and given five years in prison my god yeah so i mean if that's true it's it's a remarkable snapshot, right, of how frightened the state is of a child's drawing, right? In yeah. this case, yeah, you know, and and so the sense of how powerful that is, the sense of that the state knows it needs to control people's dreams, otherwise they won't put up with this, right? that humanity will find some other equilibrium which is more natural than the state that they've created perhaps mm-hmm. you know i think often we look at these narratives and we think about how powerless we are against systems you know of the the strength of that they could you know even if you do a drawing of a of a flag that they could come and take your father away but to flip it like you are and to think about the power of that and the reason why that those systems feel under threat um, is is a lovely place to be in. Well, I mean, it's a it would be a dire situation to be in, wouldn't it, and to live in that environment. But the other thing that I wanted to talk about is the way that you deal with the subject of work. So Jack is essentially a kind of indentured servant, isn't he? You know, and you've got that wonderful Black Mirror esque announcement system which is constantly telling him how many credits he's used or how many credits he's gained for the work that he's doing but the work you've made i'm sure purposely absurd 
in the sense that he's moving a cat or a flamingo or a blue lizard from one side of a screen to the other. Now, that to me, it seems that you're, you know, you're having a having a laugh at the mundanity of of a lot of people's work, you know, especially in that digital realm, because it can feel like. I mean, when I'm editing this very program, there'll be times <laughs> when it feels like I'm moving coloured boxes around the screen. And there is that lizard part of your brain that goes, why are you doing this? Why is that important? <laughs> um, but talk to me about that. Why the cat, flamingo and lizard? Yeah, I mean, I guess it's many things. It, it's something, A, it's something very visual, something that's kind of helping the listener imagine, you know, it's, it's a sort of fun game in itself. But it's also, it is very much something that points to the absurdity of this world that it's it, it's infantile as well though right i mean he's been reduced to a child's game it's totally infantile as the story progresses i mean it's very clear at the start i guess there is this sense that there is there is something that is sitting b- behind <laughs> that is really happening and there is this very sort of simplified system that people are having to go through and in a way it, it is a comment on on our society i think it is a comment on you know, certainly that kind of the aspiration for for working your way up through your career and up working your way up through the food chain and having a family and all those kind of things that we're told are the kind of right steps. I mean, Jack in this story is presumably earning his right to take part in the the civilization that exists for him, right? So it's his way of paying his taxes, I suppose. Yeah, in some way. I mean, in within this within this world, what's being created is that all every basic right is taken away from people. You know, and 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 the most kind of the highest up of those basic rights being to breed, to have a, to have a family, to kind of to, to have your own children, and then that those rights are earned back. So you kind of basically it's like let's start on minus a hundred. And then yeah. the basic rights are earned back. Well, I mean, and that's that's very much the definition of indentured servitude, isn't it? Is that mm. you you're working to pay for the lights that are on that yeah. light the factory floor in which you work and the uniform that you wear to work, you know. And by the exactly. end of the day, you've paid off those two things, you know, and yeah. the meal that they give you um, and the toilet to roll keep that you, you used in the middle. Exactly. Of the- exactly. It's yeah. like. What I love what you've done with the ridiculousness of moving the cat and the flamingo is that it clearly, at least in the glimpse of the universe that you're given, it clearly doesn't need to be done. And he's clearly not given any respect for it. So you just get that sense of someone that's completely without self-esteem, right? It's been Mm. beaten out of him almost by this system that tells him he's living in paradise, but actually... Uh, he's got nothing to be proud of. And mm. and perhaps that's, you know, in, in a kind of 1984 kind of sense, perhaps ultimately that is the worst thing you can do to mm. a human being is to make them feel completely unnecessary. Mm. You know, and that's far worse of a pain psychologically over a number of years, perhaps, than, than the more brutal things that you might think uh would be more damaging to someone. So so I think, you know, why do we tell these stories of these terrible places to each other? 
it's perhaps to remind us of some fundamental things that we need or that we shouldn't be doing to Absol- each other. Absolutely. It's a, you know, these things are kind of cautionary tales, aren't they? Um, yes. And I, and I suspect, I mean, thinking of this story, that actually people have been telling apocalyptic stories forever, right? Yeah. I mean, um, it would be fascinating to go on a journey to try and find the earliest examples of that. But there's something, it seems to me, quite necessary about the human imagination to imagine the worst. Mm. And to, yeah, and, and to, it's that thing of pulling at a thread and going, actually, if what is at the end of this thread? You know, if you keep controlling in this way, what is the the ex- most extreme version of this and what, mm. and what happens to humans within this. And you also cannot separate stories from the time that they came. I also feel like there's a need for modelling the other. And much as it was, it's necessary to, to talk about dystopias or any of those kind of things, I think the need for us now to talk about utopias or to model what, what a good version looks like is really important and essential. Mm, okay, that's interesting. So modelling the other, you mean uh, the narrative which basically is of a world where people are genuinely at peace and have achieved some kind of state of harmony? Yeah, or that the, or, or that the system is built towards betterment and people's you know and people's well-being i think there's a there's a lot of stories of uh, you know uh, of where it goes wrong and and in some ways science fiction has a price to pay in that we kind of all think that the future is going to be worse you know we all have this kind of this story that it's all going to go shit but also there is a version where actually people learn from from all the things that we know and, and make a, and make better systems. See, I think that this is, we're onto something here. I mean, that's a really fascinating line of inquiry, right? Um, without doubt, certainly in our present state, we are far more interested as a culture in apocalyptic stories. Um, I mean, th- th- there's a number of, of big uh, precedents to this type of story, which are kind of worth name checking. I don't know how many of these that you know, but have you ever seen THX one one three eight? Great film. Yeah, amazing film. film. Right. So the similarities that I see uh, with that and to sleep to dream, and and it's a really important place, and this is also true of Brave New World, is that all of these worlds there is a sense that your main characters, the the characters that you're encouraged to empathize with are living in a simulation, right? Mm. And that's important because they are told, they are being told that they live in paradise. Mm. And I mean, they're they're quite literally explicitly being told in your piece here uh, that they have a wonderful life, right? That you are happy. That idea of simulation to me uh, is is a really important one because it seems to me that the further that society, civilization, groups of people living together 
progress, certainly in the technological realm, the more we live in simulations, right? Mm. And I'm not even talking about a Tron-like existence of the future. I mean, if you compare our lives now to our even our parents or our grandparents' life, you know, we were the first um, generation to be raised by TV, right? Mm. So much of the information in our brains is referenced or culturally indexed to TV shows and films in a way that our parents weren't even, mm. you know. Our grandparents would have grown up without central heating and perhaps outside toilets, right? So each layer that you go back, you get nearer to some sense of people living in a physical uh, reality. Whereas, and, and it, they may sound like insignificant details, but I think it does edge us towards a simulation in the sense that, you know, in your heated home where... Uh, you know, your stories are told to you through films. Your um, information comes from the internet. You know, so mm. many of your social interactions, perhaps on social media. You've got the whole discussion around pornography, you know, replacing sex or an adjunct to sex. I think we're all, you know, for our ancestors, you know, going back five or six generations, we are absolutely living a simulation of life as opposed to what they would have considered to be um, a state of life. Whether it's worse or better, to me, that's the interesting question because we are committed to a narrative of perpetual improvement and we're convinced that we've got it so much better than the people before us. Um, it's interesting to poke at that. I certainly don't have an answer, but it's interesting to poke at that and ask whether that is true. What's fascinating, I think, about these post-apocalyptic stories and To Sleep to Dream being one of them is that the audience is given the perspective that we know that it's not paradise, mm. right? We're given this kind of behind-the-curtain glimpse of, oh, that must be awful, whereas the character is unsure, right? They're having this dialogue with the system. They don't know. They suspect that it might not be what they're being told it is. Uh, but they don't know. But as the audience, you know that they're being fooled, right? That they're in a simulation. I think what we're talking about in terms of the Whitetail stories within this piece is around stories for modelling, for modelling society, the role of the dystopia is to to shine a light on society as it is, you know, to show actually what's what are these behaviours that we're carrying out? What happens if we keep exploring them or we keep pursuing them? And what does it actually mean to be a human in that? And I think that's it's a different kind of story than the ones that we've visited in the past, but I think it's really essential. I think it's important to have stories that can probe at the as wider society and make us question whether the ways that we're living are the right ways. I'm not saying that this piece does that, um, but I think that is the role of, of the kind of dystopian story. I, I think it certainly does do that. And I think a lot of people will recognise themselves in that main actor, right? And I think that's why it works. I mean, and it's arguably why... Uh, shows like Black Mirror are so popular because whilst mm. it's an exaggeration and it's a kind of future now kind of example, isn't it? I'm thinking of Black Mirror now. Quite often it's technology that doesn't exist right now, 
but it feels like it could in any number of years. So it puts you into the position of that character and you empathize with them, you know? It seems to me, again, what is important about the Jack character is that he's not being given any nourishment. And yeah. and a really important part of his portrayal in the audio realm is the fact that he's clearly if not unwell, then unhealthy, right? That is, yeah. they, they aren't the noises of a healthy human being that he's making. Yeah, as, as the story progresses, what he finds is a, is a tribe. He finds this kind of, ex, this, this higher sense of consciousness or this kind of, these realms, this, and, you know, throughout the way that dreams are positioned are as this thing of openness, of freedom, of, you know, the the fact that it's a giant moth that's flying, you know, everything is large, everything is open, everything is natural and wide, you know, that's mm. it's sea and it's trees growing. And then he finds this openness and this expansion. And he, in some ways, you're right, he finds a different story. He finds um, uh, narratives that are nourishing to him um, and characters that are aspirational or inspirational to him. I think it is essential that we find that there are, that we engage with stories that are nourishing that have, that help us, and I think they do serve that purpose. With that comes an increase in imagination. It becomes like a collective understanding of what's possible, and I think that's for me. There's something about this point in time that's possibly what we're missing. We're all aware of the story of what could go wrong, but we're not sure of how it could go right. And I think that's something that's really needed right now. To be revisited, I think. Um, yeah. Let's try and find, perhaps, in our search of um, experimental audio storytelling, the examples. Let's try and find a utopian narrative. They must exist out there. Should we have a dig? For We'll have a dig. Let, let's have a dig around and see what we can come up with. All right. I'm going to put a link, as ever, in the show notes. To, am I going to put a link to this segment or am I going to put a link to the piece as a whole? I think, do you know what? I'll, I'll put it up as a whole. People can listen to it. It's never been shared before, but if people want to listen to it and it's a kind of special treat for people who've, who've got this far with us. Yeah, how up, long is the whole piece? The whole piece runs at about 90 minutes. It was, you know, it was created to be listened to it in a live environment, um, but it's, I'm sure it will be an interesting listen on headphones or I hope it will. Okay. Um, up with that great well so for anybody uh, taking a deep dive into that please get in contact and let us know what you think what your thoughts are um, about that and anything else to do with the show any of the previous stories we'd love to get your feedback there's a uh, email address in the notes which is info at academicpodcastagency.com and I guess we'll see you back here for the next episode Episode 10. Episode 10. I feel like we should do something special for episode 10. All right. Well, let's have a think about what that is. I'll wear a hat. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All right. Meet us back here. It would be great to see you. Dan, lovely as always. Take care. Until next time.